The Wicked Library is brought to you by Sanitary Magazine. Sanitary Magazine showcases original horror fiction and dark verse alongside news, reviews, and interviews. Now weekly as of June 1st. SanitaryMagazine.com Also brought to you by Shadows at the Door. Shadows at the Door is an ever-growing collection of haunted stories inspired by the ghastly, the ghoulish, and the macabre. You can enjoy the pleasing terrors and similar content at shadowsatthedoor.com. Warning, the Wicked Library contains adult themes, adult situations, adult language, and graphic depictions of terror, bloodshed, the occasional possession, and your future trips to your psychiatrist, so he or she can assure you it's only a story. This podcast is intended for mature audiences only. You've been warned, kiddies. <laughs> Hello, kiddies. Have a seat and relax. I'm your librarian. There's nothing to be afraid of, yet. Hold on to yourselves, boils and ghouls. This is going to be a dark ride. We'll leave the lights on for now. No talking. It's story time at the Wicked Library. <laughs> Stuck by Caitlin Marceau. The alarm sounds off loudly in my room, the noise echoing down the hall towards me. My brain feels fuzzy. I must have nodded off on the couch sometime last night. The stupid thing is more comfortable than my bed. Best damn purchase I've made since buying an apartment across town for my ex. He never would have let me buy a leather sofa. He used to say the material would stick to his legs if he wore boxers, and that it would heat up like an oven if the sun got to it. He used to say a lot of things I didn't agree with. So I don't care about him or his sticky legs anymore. I don't feel like getting up. I don't want to move. But the noise is making me crazy. I open my eyes. Are they already open? The room looks blurry and out of focus. My eyes feel dry, sore, and I'm so tired. I didn't know people could sleep with their eyes open. I've never done that before. Or, I don't think I've done that before. It doesn't seem like something I've done. I go to blink, but I don't. Why don't I blink? I try to do it again, but nothing happens. It feels like there's dust in my eyes and I want them to water. Nothing happens. Something should be happening. Why isn't something happening? I'm still trying to blink without success. The alarm is still ringing and now I want to turn it off. I will myself to blink, but it's impossible. I try to roll my eyes and get them to move, but they're still 
Something's wrong. Really wrong. I'm pulling down on my eyelids with as much mental force as I can, but it's not working. Why isn't it working? Are my eyes broken? That doesn't make sense. Eyes don't break. Or they don't break like this. I don't understand. Why aren't they moving? Why isn't anything else moving? My heart should be racing, but it isn't. I can't hear it doing anything. Is my heart beating? It has to be, because I'm here panicking. But I can't hear it. Did I go deaf? No, I'm not deaf. I can still hear that fucking alarm. I really need to turn it off. I go to get up, but I can't get up. I can't move. I should be moving. Why am I not moving? Am I paralyzed? Maybe I fell asleep wrong. Maybe I fell asleep with my head resting awkwardly, and then when I turned in the night, I pulled a nerve or snapped my own neck. Did I snap my own neck? Is that even possible? That can't be possible. I don't remember snapping my own neck. But I don't remember falling asleep either. Oh my god. Oh my god. Move. Move. Just move. Pull an Thurman and wiggle your big toe. Easy peasy. I'm giving it my all, but it's not moving. No matter how hard I try to move my toe, blink an eye, my body doesn't want to listen to my brain. They've been disconnected, separated, and I can't do anything about it. I need help. I need to call out, but I can't move my lips. My tongue feels heavy and big. It's like a limp piece of meat stuck in my dry mouth. I can't say a word. Just like I can't stop looking up at my damn ceiling or listening to my stupid alarm clock. I try to make a sound, try to push air from my lungs up into my throat. I'll settle for a gurgle, even a ghost of a noise. But the room stays quiet. I stay quiet. This is a dream. This has to be a dream. This isn't real because it can't be real. People don't just wake up one morning and find themselves stuck. It's definitely a dream. A very scary, very real, very horrible dream. I want to wake up. How do I wake up? Bang. My alarm clock never bangs. What's banging and why isn't the noise waking me up? Maybe this isn't a dream. Maybe this is real. This can't be real. 
what I think it is. There it goes again. More banging. There's muffled shouting, but I don't know who's shouting. I recognize the voice. But I can't remember. My head is still fuzzy, and it feels like sleep is trying to pull me away. Except, I don't want to go away. I want to stay here. I need to stay here. I need to fix this. I know this banging. It's a hard fist hitting the harder drywall. The walls of the complex are thinner than rice paper, and every night I can hear my roid rage neighbor sleeping with the girlfriend of his roommate that works night shifts. If I can hear them, they can hear me. They can hear the alarm clock, and they can come help me. Dude, can you shut that fucking thing off? Some of us work evenings, jackass. Night shift neighbor. No, I can't turn it off. I can't do anything. I need you to come help me. Please, come and help me. Get the landlord or get the fire axe and chop down my door. I don't care what you do, just do something. There's more banging, but then it stops. It's been stopped for a long time. Did he get the landlord or the maintenance guy who stares at people? It's at my front door. The door 10 feet behind this couch. There's someone 10 feet from me and they can help me. Stop hitting my door and get someone. The alarm stops. It shouldn't stop. I know it turns off on its own after a while to preserve power, or in case someone forgets to unplug it when they go on vacation, but it can't have been long enough for it to give up. Don't give up. Keep yelling at me. Keep yelling at the neighbor. Don't give up on me yet. I still need your help. Isn't the point of an alarm to get you up? So get me up. The neighbor's footsteps seem further away. Don't go away. Please, don't go away. No, come back. You can't leave. I need you here. I need your help. His door closes. Why are you closing your door? You should be here, yelling at me for waking you up, not going back to bed. Please don't go back to bed. Everything is so quiet. I'm so quiet. I can't feel my pulse. And my heart should be thumping against my ribcage in fear. My palms should be sweaty. And my chest should be heaving. But they're not. I can't feel my chest rising or falling with breath. Am I paralyzed? If I was, I wouldn't be able to feel, right? And I can't feel. Or, I don't think I can feel. I must have snapped my neck. I can't believe I snapped my neck. But I did. Or, I think I did. No, I did. I definitely did. How are they going to fix this? Can they fix this? 
don't want to be stuck in a motorized wheelchair for the rest of my life with my brain plugged into a machine that tells my body when to blink and swallow. I don't want to spend the rest of my life eating from a tube. How am I going to work? Public relations means having to talk. And if I can't talk, I can't work. I need to work. It's my life. They'll, they'll just have to fix me. There's a tiny bell. A soft clinking of metal on metal making its way towards me. Deliberately. I can see a tuft of black fur out of the corner of my eye. It moves out of my line of vision. But then, all at once, appears in front of me. There's a light pressure on my chest from where it's standing... And the little bastard doesn't even bother to sheathe its claws. It's looking down at me. My cat. Actually, Charles's old cat that I ended up with is looking down at me. He got all the appliances, and I got this stupid fucking cat. Why is it purring? It always hated me too much to show affection. It rubs its face against my chest, and I know it's getting its ugly black fur on me. It's still purring. Stop purring! It looks me in the eye, and even though cats can't smile, I'm sure it's smiling. It looks too happy to be doing anything else. It knows I'm here, helpless. And it's enjoying it. The furry little fucker is actually enjoying this. I hate cats. They eat their owners if the owner's dead and the cat's out of food. But he has plenty of food. And I'm not dead. So why does the cat look like it's licking its lips? If it eats me, I'll kill it. Get off me. Get the hell off me, bitch! It leans in and licks my cheek. It's not cute. It's not sweet. It's a taste test. The cat's sampling me for later, wetting its chops in anticipation. It wants me to die here so that it can eat me. Not out of necessity, but out of fun. It's looking at me like a lion looks at a gazelle that's been taken down by the pride. It licks me, again, its whiskers brushing against the side of my nose. Get off me, you ungrateful, hairball-hacking, catnip-loving, sneaky little... That's a key. That's a key being put into a lock. My lock. My lock on my door. Someone's about to come in and save me. The hinges moan in protest as the door slowly swings open. Who is it? I can't see who it is. China, you home? Yes, I'm home. David, I'm here. Walk forward and look down. That's where I am. Find me. Come over here and find me. I saw your car in the parking lot, so I figured you'd still be here. 
And because I have a late start this morning, I thought you might be in the mood for breakfast out or something. If you had the time, he makes his way forward slowly. I can hear the soft ticking of his watch. I'd recognize that ticking anywhere. It's from the old watch he wears everywhere, no matter how outdated it is. It's the same one I saw him wearing at the company Christmas party my husband had dragged me to. David had worked as a sales rep back then. He still does. China? Even when he is looking for me to answer him, he always says my name like it's a question. I can't help but wonder if he has a hard time remembering it. Maybe his wife's name is on the tip of his tongue, ready to jump out of his mouth when he least expects it. I hope mine does when he's with her. At least it'll finally give him a reason to leave her. The same reason his name had given me to divorce Charles, my husband. No, my ex. He shakes me, and my head rolls uselessly from side to side. He shakes me harder. I can't answer him. I try to, but I can't. I want to scream, cry, fucking blink, but I can't do anything. He takes my face between his hands and stares into my eyes. He looks desperate, wild. Why hasn't he called for an ambulance? Why is he just looking at me? You can't do anything, so get someone who can. Help me. He drops my face and backs away quickly. Now, pick up the phone and dial 911. He looks at me, horrified, breathing fast. Pick up the phone, David. He wipes his hands on his suit jacket, madly, like he's trying to erase me from his skin. What are you doing? Why aren't you calling? He sits down on the window ledge and puts his head between his knees, breathing deep. He takes out his phone. Good. Call. He dials a number. The number's more than three numbers. Who are you calling? Call fucking 911. He waits for them to answer. I wait for him to help me. Rick? Rick, fuck, man, I need your help. I don't know what to do. I'm so fucking screwed. You know that chick I've been banging? Chick you've been banging? Chick? Me. It's me, Shina. I'm not some chick. I'm the woman you said you were supposed to end up with. I'm the woman you said you'd leave everything for. Not some slut you've been sleeping with. She's dead. She's fucking dead. I'm what? I'm not dead. I'm not dead. I can't be dead. I'm here. I'm here, you idiot. Right here. I'm talking to you. I just can't move. That's all. I've broken my neck and I can't do anything. I can't speak, but I'm not dead. I'm not. No. I'm here. I'm alive. I need help. I can't be dead. People don't just die like this. I didn't die like this. I'm at her place right now, 
and I don't know what to do. If I call an ambulance, they're going to ask what I'm doing here. They're going to ask how I got in, why I have a key. Fuck. And if Elizabeth finds out, then we're over. I'm not dead. I can't be dead because it doesn't make sense. I'm fine. I'm not fine, but I'm not dead. Maybe I'm dead. No, I'm not. I'm just stuck. Just trapped. I just can't move. I'm not dead. I'm not dead. I'm dead. No, I'm not. I don't want to lose her, Rick. I just I just don't know what to do. You don't want to lose her? You told me you were leaving her. You're not leaving her? I'm not dead. We're over. Once I'm fixed, we're over. And I'll be fine. Because I'm right here. I'm alive. And we're over. He hangs up the phone and takes a long pause before calling 911. He lies to them. He tells them, I'm dead on my couch. But that's not true. I know it's not true. When he hangs up, he puts the phone down on the coffee table and just watches me. Why are you watching me? Stop watching me. I don't want you looking at me and I can't look away from you. This is the man I used as my excuse. You were the reason I got a divorce. I knew my marriage was heading nowhere fast, but to give it all up for you? Charles may not have loved me, but he wouldn't be useless like you. He wouldn't give up trying. I don't think he ever did give up trying. What's he going to say when he finds out I'm dead? Not dead? Paralyzed. How are you going to tell him, David? Are you going to say, we were just friends? And that you were meeting me for breakfast? What kind of lie are you going to come up with to explain your key? Or are you too worried about losing your job? You're pathetic. I can't wait until they fix me. I can't wait to take apart the lies you're going to invent. Or tell Charles that it was you I slept with. And I will tell him. Because I'm fine. I will be fine. Except I'm starting to think I'm really dead. I can't hear my own breath. Or feel my heartbeat. I can't move. And I feel cold. I can't be dead. But I feel dead. I'm not dead. Probably. Why is it taking so long for them to come and help me? The ambulance should be here by now. Why isn't here yet? I can hear footsteps from the hall. Who is it? Is it the paramedics? I can hear them talking to each other. They're getting closer. I'm in here. 
David hears them and gets up to go meet them at the door. They're all coming closer now. But none of them seems to hurry. They need to hurry because I need them to help me. They need to fix this. The one with the skinnier face comes close to me and shines a light in my eye. I stare straight into it. He puts a finger on my wrist, waiting to feel my pulse. He frowns. Don't frown. He looks back at the other one and they roll the stretcher closer to the couch. Good. They know I'm broken and they need to hurry to reverse this. One of them leaves to get something from the truck. Shouldn't they have everything they need with them? The rat-faced one calls it into the hospital. They're bringing in a body. That's not right. It's not. I'm not a body. I'm alive. Why can't they get it right? Why can't I hear my heart? The other one comes back from the ambulance with something black. He lays it on the stretcher while the other one consoles David. Then he unzips it and I realize it's a bag. It's a body bag. It's my body bag. I'm not dead. They slide the stretcher next to the sofa and place me on top of it. Don't put me in the bag. Please don't put me in the bag. Please, please. Oh, God, I'll do anything not to go in that bag. There's a mistake. A big mistake. They wrap the edges of the bag around me, the cold plastic rubbing against my skin. Don't do it. But they're doing it. They zip the bag almost closed, leaving only my face out of the plastic. The rat-faced paramedic comes closer and reaches his gloved hand out toward me. What are you doing? He puts them on my eyelids and begins to close my eyes. Stop! I want him to stop, but he's not stopping. My eyes are closed. And everything's too dark. I want to scream... I can't scream, but I'm still trying. They're rolling me down the hall. I can't hear David anymore. Is he still in the apartment? I can't hear much over the sound of their heavy boots on the floor. I catch snippets of them talking. They're discussing hockey scores and Chinese food. The wheels on the stretcher squeak, and my body slides forwards a bit when they accidentally roll me into the elevator wall. How can these gorillas in work boots be so careless? They pull me along until the floor becomes too bumpy to be a floor. It's pavement. I'm outside. Cars are rushing by, and people are talking in low voices. Or, I think I can hear people talking. 
They shoved me into the back of the ambulance and slammed the doors shut. I can't hear anything anymore. Everything's quiet. No, the engine revs. They're driving. We're going to the hospital. The back cabin is filled with the clinks of machinery and emergency response equipment bumping around. Are we stopping for coffee? I can't tell for sure, but I think they just stopped for coffee. They haven't put the sirens on. They still think I'm dead. And I'm starting to think they're right. But they can't be right. Because... I don't want them to be. The ride to the hospital takes forever. They wheel me down the halls and into another elevator. The plastic still feels cold, and this gurney keeps whining and creaking. They push me through the doors of another room. There's no sound except a faint humming. Why do I know that sound? They come to a halt and I hear a door being pulled open. It's a sucking kind of sound at first. And then I recognize the noise. My fridge. They're dumping me in a morgue. They're putting me in the people-friendly version of a big Maytag. My back is put onto a freezing slab of steel. They're making a mistake. But I can't tell them. I can't do anything. They slide me into the cubby. I want to cry for them to stop. I want to cry. I don't belong here. The walls radiate cold and I'm shivering. Except I'm not shivering. I just feel like I should be. The door closes behind me and I'm left alone with nothing but the humming. The humming and the cold. I'm healthy. I work out. I eat right. I've never had a history of heart disease or anything for that matter. Unless you count chronic failed relationships as a medical condition, which I don't. How could I have died? I was fine when I went to bed. I wasn't feeling faint or sick or different. I was just plain old me falling asleep. Now I'm here in a fridge alone. God, what if everyone in this fridge is like me too? What if they're all stuck and screaming, but no one can hear them either? I'm in the cold for a long time, and then someone comes for me. I hear the sucking sound from my compartment door and the high-pitched scraping of metal being pulled out. My bag is opened and the warmer air feels nice on my skin. I'm transferred to another gurney, and then another metal slab. Where are they moving me? Someone is taking my clothing off. Why are they stripping me? Stop it! Get off me! I can feel the cold scissors gliding against my skin as they hack at my dress. The man sings along with rock songs from the 80s. There's something wrong. Something's wrong. It hurts. He's cutting into me. Oh, 
God, stop it. Stop, it hurts. He's slicing my chest open. He drags the knife deep through my skin, ripping it open from my chest to my navel. Please make it stop. Just stop it. You'll kill me. He puts something cold and metal in my chest and hums to Bon Jovi as he uses it to pull my ribs apart. He's killing me. He's tearing me apart and I can't even scream. Stop! 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 His hands are in me and he's playing with my organs. He's pulling them out. Stop pulling them out. I listen to the wet splatter of something inside me slapping against the metal table. I'm in hell. I'm dead, and this is my hell. I'm in agony, and he doesn't care. He's mutilating me, and no one cares. Why isn't anyone stopping him? A power saw. I can hear it before I can feel it. He's cutting deep into my temple. I want to die. I want it to stop. I want him to stop sawing into my skull to stop cutting me to ribbons. But it doesn't stop, and I know I'm really dead. I should be unconscious, but I'm not. I can feel everything, and I'm still here. So I'm dead dead and trapped it finally stops he sews me up and washes me down before putting me back in the fridge naked and sore the next person who takes me out is the mortician who's going to make me look pretty before they put me in the ground she brushes out my hair while talking on the phone She tells whoever's on the other end that she wishes she had my eyebrows. I want to tell her that I wish I had more time. She tells them that it was a cerebral aneurysm that killed me. A blood vessel in my brain must have broken when I fell asleep, and I bled to death internally. She does my nails and applies enough makeup to keep L'Oreal employed for the next ten years. She layers it on so thick that it feels more like paste than foundation. She wrestles a dress onto me. It feels like the canary yellow one Charles bought me on our honeymoon to Paris. It's completely inappropriate and beyond uncomfortable. I'm going to be buried in a dress I hate with caked-on foundation. If I was alive, I'd probably die of embarrassment. They set me up in a casket holding flowers that don't smell real. People shuffle into the room, awkwardly. All of them talk about how much a shock my death was. They don't understand how someone as young as I am can drop dead like that. I don't understand how I drop dead like that. I want more time. I should have more time. Old people are supposed to be here, not me. Everyone says they're upset but I don't hear anyone wailing over my body, begging for me to come back to them. He 
he must be so upset. He really loved her. Someone close to me, Jess, says. Yeah, the dress Charles picked out for her is beautiful. Someone told me it's the one she wore on their first date, another girl says. I can't tell who it is. Whoever told them about the dress is wrong. I wore jeans on that date. He must be devastated. You know, he never saw the divorce coming, says Jess again. Is it Jess? Might be Dana. They sound exactly alike. Didn't see it coming? He knew we were getting a divorce before I did. He told me he could feel the distance growing between us for a long time. Who told her he didn't see it coming? Who told them about the dress? They're getting their facts wrong. I still can't believe she was sleeping with David, says the mystery woman. And for him to not even turn up for her funeral. David isn't here. After everything, he's not here. He told me he loved me and he can't even come out to this. I know. When Charles found out, you should have seen his face. I think he always wanted her to come back to him. I think he knew he made a mistake ending it with her, and he was waiting for her to realize that, too. They move away, talking to themselves. My friends still gossiping about me, even after I'm gone. No, after I'm dead. I'm not gone. I'm still right here, right here and wishing I could go back. Wishing I could undo it all with David. I'm not saying Charles and I would have been happy or even married much longer than we were, but at least David wouldn't have been my reason for ending things. He wouldn't have been the one I was so quick to toss it away for. It's such a shame that such a beautiful dress. Do you think they could cremate her in something else? Someone jokes as they walk by my body. Cremate? I always wanted to be buried in the same cemetery as my parents. What do they mean, cremate? I don't want to be set on fire. It's a mistake. Just another wrong fact. Just like the one about my dress. That's all. Except, it isn't a mistake. I can hear the crackling of fire as they open the door to push me in. My feet are warm, unpleasantly so. There's one hard push and then a loud clang and the door closing behind me. The fire crackles beneath me. I must be on a grate or shelf, something to let the fire up and let me slip through to the bottom. It's hot, too hot. The fire is closer now, and I can smell the coffin burning. I can smell my skin burning. I can feel my skin burning. I want to tell Charles I'm sorry. I want to do a lot of things that I'll never get to do. It gets hotter, and I feel my skin crackle and burn, flaking off into ash. The flames devour my body, breaking it into a million flakes of dust. I try to scream, but everything stays quiet.
Today's episode of the Wicked Library featured a story by Caitlin Marceau. Stuck was formerly published by our good friends at Sanitarium Magazine. If you'd like more information on Caitlin Marceau and her work, please visit CaitlinMarceau.com and follow her on Twitter at Caitlin Marceau. Artwork for today's show was created by John Towers. You can find more of John's work at www.stigmatastudios.com and interact with John on Twitter at Johnny Axe. Stay tuned for a short Q&A with the author in just a moment. Big thanks to Mark Nixon for two great tales last week and to Jeanette Andromeda for the superb artwork. She even took it upon herself to draw four extra images to go along with the stories. You can see those over at HorrorMade.com. Don't forget to visit our sponsors, ShadowsAtTheDoor.com and SanitariumMagazine.com. Also, please share the tear, share the show, and help us grow. The best way you can support the show and help us keep bringing you great authors is to go over to iTunes and give us a rating. Ratings are free, and they mean a lot to us. Don't forget that next month we'll be putting out a monthly newsletter featuring news, an exclusive story, artwork, and more. And every month we'll be giving away a great Wicked prize to all our newsletter readers. Sign up at www.thewickedlibrary.com. And now, Caitlin Marceau. I guess I'll start by saying that I really enjoyed Stuck. I thought it was a great story, obviously, if I picked it. (laughs) I just wanted to know, when you wrote it, did you have a concept in mind, or did it just kind of flow stream of consciousness? It's actually kind of interesting. I was really fortunate when I went to university uh, that I got to take a class with Trevor Ferguson, and he's the one who actually writes all the John Farrow novels. He's like that guy. Okay. And he started his class by saying, never start your story with your character waking up. (laughs) (laughs) So I was like... Well, let's see if I can kind of take a spin on this. You can't start a story this way. Yes. And see where it goes from there. Well, you know, breaking the rules is fun if you can do it effectively. Yeah. Yeah. I was happy with it. Yeah. Now, that's one of the things I noticed that the story does have a very natural stream of consciousness feel to it, which I think is kind of hard to achieve sometimes because she moves very easily from one thought to the next. And you can kind of get the sense as you're going through the story when she's starting to accept what's actually happening to her. Did that come naturally or is that something that you had to work at to get right? I guess it was kind of an in-between stage. Like it felt really natural when writing it. So I didn't hit too many hiccups during the actual writing phase, (laughs) but come editing, (laughs) everything I think that I thought sounded natural was completely wrong. It just didn't, it didn't jive well in places. It felt off. So it was easy to write, but it was less so when the editing too. If you took away sections, suddenly that stream of consciousness sounded too choppy. And then you try to put lines back and then it sounds too wordy. So finding the balance, that was the tough part. One of the things that I really liked about the story is that you conveyed emotions really naturally. There's parts where you capture, I think, really well, the strange ability that we have as people to feel multiple emotions at the same time. So her being scared, angry, and emotionally distraught whenever certain things are going on. Was that easy for you to do or did that take some work? Oh no, that took a lot of work. Yeah. I'm kind of robotic. I find a lot of the time. So finding like a natural tone for a person, I guess is a bit difficult for me. I did as best I could to capture that, but it was really a lot of editing. 
Yeah. It's definitely not natural. <laughs> editing is, it's, you know, that's one of the things that I always find interesting is that when people love a particular writer's work, they're always like, wow, they're so great at what they do. And you're right. Eventually they are. But I think that's the behind the scenes part that, not to spoil the magic, but. <laughs> I think it's difficult to sometimes achieve that natural feel without a lot of work. What you're getting is the best version of that story, not the first draft. Yeah, I don't really think there's such a thing as a great writer, but I think there's such a thing as a great editor. <laughs> that's a good point. I think point. everyone's writing is terrible at first. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. Because I know a lot of people get discouraged when they first start to write because it's not like who they're trying to emulate, but it takes time to get there, Yeah, especially to find your own voice. Yeah, it's definitely tough, but they get better with time and like just editing, lots and lots of editing. Yeah, definitely. Now, everybody's process is different. That's one of the things that I've found over the years talking to people is that everybody kind of has their own thing that works for them. So when you're writing and you, you get into a part of your writing where maybe you're having a hard time getting the story going or whatever, what, what do you do? What helps you get past that? Oh, I just make a T and power through it. Yeah. I don't. I don't like taking time off. I just want to get it done. So I'll just force myself to just get it out <laughs> or I won't do it at all. And then I've given up on that story. So yeah, I can't let that happen. Right. Absolutely. No. I wanted to talk a little bit about the workshops and uh, talks that you give. What are some of the, uh, the talks that you've, you've given? Well, I did um, the Montreal Comic-Con in 2014 for a conference called Bikini Brains and Boogeymen. And it was all about looking at... I love the title, by the way. Pardon? Oh, thanks. <laughs> the title's awesome. <laughs> it's like a reference to um, this title. I forget what the exact one was, but this man pretty much had come up with a title about like how you need to have like boobs, blood, and something else to make a good horror movie. So mm. it was kind of like a, a throwback to that being like, you're actually wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> So it's basically a whole workshop about um, for writers. So not necessarily for like literature, but, you know, if you're doing video games or film or anything. And it's taking a look at writing women in horror, but not from such a gendered approach, because I think the problem people have is they look at women as like this unique species <laughs> with like loves of pink and unicorns and that kind of stuff. And it's <laughs> really frustrating. Yeah. Um, so I tried to take it and be like, no, we should actually have a humanistic approach to it, because at the end of the day, we're all just people. So I did that in Montreal last year and in Ottawa this year. And then this year I'm actually giving a presentation on monster making. So it's going to be talking about the elements to make a convincing monster, whether it's supernatural or human. Okay. And I'm also doing um, a panel on Disney and women in it. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be cool, I think. Thanks. Disney's interesting because they've had a lot of transition through the years. And yeah. They have stuff that does definitely have elements of horror to it, whether you see that on the surface or not. Fairy tales are, I think, the original horror stories. And, and of course, yeah. all their stuff's based on uh, fairy tales. They've, they've taken a lot of oomph out of most of the fairy tales, of course. So I, I've heard different things. Some people say that Disney does a better job of writing their female leads nowadays than they used to. And some people say that they still have some things that are lacking. What's your thoughts on that? Um, I definitely think they've improved. I don't think they're necessarily all the way there in terms of like more feminist characters and stories. I yeah. think they still have a pretty long way to go. If you compare Merida to Ariel or to Snow White or to Cinderella from like, you know, anywhere from the 50s to like the early 90s, uh -huh. Merida is a significantly better, more, you know, independent, reliable, I found female character than the other ones. But their newest one, Frozen, it's all about sisterly love and women. And I think it's really kind of lacking. Yeah. And I can't get anywhere without Kristoff's help. 
it's kind of frustrating because, I mean, she should be more able in what she does in that film and really empowered. And even though it is, you know, her and her sister's love that really saves the day, it still pretty much all hinges on Kristoff's ability to help her through all this. So does that speak more to, you think, the writers or more to the traditional tales where the in the old days, that's the way it was looked at, is that women needed to be helped because they were the fairer sex? Yeah, <laughs> I think it's I think it's a bit of both, actually. I mean, I think there are definite ways that you could break away from the traditional stories mm-hmm. and still keep the feel of it. Because I mean, the Snow Queen, I think, is what the original one was based off of. And mm-hmm. it's not exactly to the letter when it comes to Frozen. Like, I don't remember a dancing magical <laughs> snowman. <laughs> no. Oddly enough. <laughs> so I think they could definitely stray from the original story and maybe take away this like male dependency. Yeah. But at the time like I, I do understand that they, they want to keep to a certain extent the tone and I mean for certain tales like Quasimodo it really wouldn't be the same without Quasimodo <laughs> so well let me ask you this what is something that you wish you had known when you first started writing um oh boy that's a good question uh I'm not really sure I don't I don't know. I, I kind of didn't go into writing with like this romantic ideal. I knew it was going to be a lot of hard work. Uh-huh. I, I think actually what I was most surprised about is that there are opportunities and I don't feel everyone takes them uh-huh. necessarily. Like you have to, you have to look for opportunities. They don't just really show up. Right. And I think that was one of the things I wouldn't think I was disillusioned about, but I don't think I was necessarily aware of how much, like legwork and going out there is when it comes to writing. Like you have this idea that you're going to be a hermit and just spend your your entire day in a room writing for eight hours. Yeah. And you think I'm never going to speak to a human again. And you're so very wrong. Yeah. <laughs> it's also, I find it matter too, like just, I guess it's just personal experience, but a lot of the times you'll find yourself trying to write for like particular markets mm-hmm. and you end up writing for the complete opposite market. Just somehow it just, happenstance takes you in the exact opposite direction you wanted to go with your career. And I think a lot of people tend to fight that, but you should just go with where your writing is taking you. Cause at the end of the day, it'll lead you to where you wanted to be. It just takes it in like a more scenic route than maybe you were expecting. Now, do you outline your stuff? Do you come to writing a story with a plan in mind or do you just kind of let the story meander its way to the end. It sort of depends for certain things. I usually come with the idea of like, I like this concept. So for this one, I like the idea of like waking up dead. And that was, that's what I knew I wanted to work Uh with. And I usually come with a vague idea of who the main character is going to be, but that's, that's pretty much it. I sort of like, I enjoy the idea of the story taking itself where it's going to go. I don't want to necessarily have control over it. I just sort of want to be there for the ride. Yeah. I find the stories that I have fully planned out in my head are the ones that never get put down on paper. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, because you already know the story. You're like, what do I need to do this for? (laughs) I read this. What's wrong? (laughs) Exactly. You know, I did want to ask you something because you mentioned one of your goals is to write the strong female character that doesn't need assistance, that can do things on her own. Mm -hmm. Is that why Stuck is such a strong piece of horror writing to you because essentially she spends the entire story wanting help and not getting it. Yeah. To me, it was really like the idea of like lack of agency embodied. Yeah. And was, cause I mean, I, I didn't find Sheena was a weak character. She's no. just in a really awful situation. And just for me personally, that's one of the most horrifying things to me is being so capable, but at the same time, so unable to do anything about your situation. 
Right. Yeah, yeah. Being strong, but at the same time being completely helpless. Yeah. Awful. <laughs> so what else do you write? Are you drawn mostly to horror fiction or do you write other things as well? Or Oh, I write, I write pretty much everything. I tend to focus more on horror just because I like it more. And I like the idea of playing with these these conventions and like mixing them up and trying new things with them Uh Um, or reinventing just like old monsters and making them new again. But I mean, I write experimental fiction. Um, I recently had uh, a dark verse poem that came out through sanitarium, which was odd because I've, I've said my, I think my entire life that I disliked poetry (laughs) and then that happened. Um, And yeah, I write, I write pretty much everything. I mean, it's what I do for a living and it's what I do for fun. That's fantastic. So what other projects are you working on? What other things uh, do you have going on that people should be watching out for? Ooh, um, well, I mean, I have my two workshops that are going to be at the Montreal Comic-Con this year. So if anyone's in Montreal, I'd love to see them there. Um, I'm working on a couple of short stories at the moment, and I'm actually working on my first novel. So I'm really excited for that to happen. That's excellent. Yeah, Novels are tough. (laughs) Yeah, I'm learning. (laughs) Although I think short stories are almost harder. Because a short story has to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And a novel, you can kind of meander a little bit. Yeah, there's there's more room to play around with ideas and draw things out and really, like, flesh out your characters. Mm-hmm. But it's it can be hard, I'm noticing, not to get lost in, I guess, side stories or backstories or, like, just, like, linger and spend all this time on concepts that you don't really have to. Your reader's going to pick it up without right. you needing to force it down their throat. So. <laughs> yes. So where can folks find your work online? Where can they connect with you if they want to find out more about what you do and what you have going on? Oh, um, I'm on Facebook. I have a page and you can also follow my personal Facebook, although I don't talk so much of my writing there. Yeah. I also have a website, CaitlinMarso.com, where you can find out like the latest updates and projects that I'll be working on. And for my stories, I'm published in Sanitarium, Saturday Night Reader, Morpheus Tales, a little bit everywhere. So. Excellent. So you're all over the place. Yeah. Now you're on the Wicked Library. <laughs> Yay. So happy. <laughs> That's right. Caitlin, I wanted to thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule to come on and talk with us today. And thank you again so much for sharing your story with us. Oh, well, thanks for inviting me and welcoming me on. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Uh, hopefully we'll have you on again in the future. Thanks. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Stuck by Caitlin Marceau. Copyright, Caitlin Marceau, 2014-2015. Dramatic reading performed by Daniel Foytek. That's me. The voice of the librarian was Nelson W. Piles. The voice of Victoria Bigglesworth-Hayes was Amber Collins. Production music for this show included The Wicked Library Theme, written by Anthony Rousick of Novus. All other music in this episode was written and performed by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com and used with his permission. The Wicked Library is a Hicksunt Fabulous production. Hicksuntfabulous.com Producer, Daniel Foytek. Executive Producer, Nelson W. Piles. Full show notes with links and artwork can be found at www.thewickedlibrary.com forward slash 603. Until next time, this has been Daniel Foytek. Go ahead. Leave the, the lights, lights on. Music. Talk. Stories. Politics. This is the Society 13 Podcast Network.
Kettle Whistle Radio. Music, the Wicked Library, stories. Mouthing off. Ah. Frog Watch. with Mr. Pink. Talk, the Night Story. Music, Red Horse Radio, Politics. Society 13, where bad... I can't say that. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. 